This morning, I'm actually going to do something that I've never done in a sermon before. And, yeah. <laughs> They're like, he's a kid's pastor. Uh, what is he really going to do? Um, it's actually not all that scary, but I've never done it. So, so don't worry. Um, but I'm going to start things off a little differently this morning. I'd like to start by actually reading something to you this morning that is very thought-provoking. And if you guys are anything like me, whatever books or titles we like the best are usually the ones we agree with, right? We read a book, we're like, this is so good, because it says exactly what I'm thinking, right? But, and, and you know, that's, that's true for me too, but my wife actually read a portion of a book to me that I not only agreed with, but I believe represents, I think, a growing movement in the church world in America. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. This is a message that has been communicated by others in different books and articles for quite some time. It's nothing new to this author. Um, in fact, it's incredibly scriptural. Um, so hopefully you can co- conclude this isn't just Pastor Paul's beliefs or the beliefs of someone who influences Pastor Paul, but I think it is a, a movement, and I, I want to say, wh- what is God saying to us? What is God saying to the church in America if we keep hearing a message over and over and over again? It's something worthwhile. So, I wonder if God could be trying to communicate through this author once again to his church. So today I want to begin by reading you a portion of this book, and then what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at, right off the bat, the biblical legitimacy of what was stated. So our conclusion isn't based on someone's book. That was my greatest fear about this. I'm not reading you a book because I think it's the gospel. I'm reading you an excerpt because... This author just says a lot better what, what I believe is the truth. You know what I mean? So, so sometimes you look at it and you'll be like, if, if I try to restate that, it's not, it, it's not going to communicate the same message. So I thought, I think it would be appropriate for me to just read that this morning. So, and then what we're going to do is we'll explore some of the themes in that, that message, okay? So are you ready this morning? You ready to be read to? I was an elementary school teacher, so I could hold the book like this and turn the pages as we read and read like on this crazy angle that you're like, how can they even see those words? It's actually a refined skill. But I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, The portion of, well, the author's name first is Jen Hatmaker. Her name is Jen Hatmaker. You may have heard of her. She mainly writes to an audience of ladies. So my wife read me the book I want to emphasize. My wife and a few other ladies actually decided to read her book called Seven, and maybe some of you have read it. Um, And this book came out of an experiment that the author did personally. Um, Jen Hatmaker decided to fast seven areas in her life in some fashion for 30 days each. Hence the title Seven. Seven months, seven areas. She decided to embark on what she referred to as a journey of less. The subtitle of the book actually reads, An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess. Great subtitle. The, the book is comprised of different journal-type entries during these seven months. And so these are things that she's been challenged on, things she has learned, you know, things like that. And I'd like to read to you from one such entry in month number six entitled Spending, and it's on day 25. And this is the portion of the text that my wife came to me and she said, you need to read this. It starts off this way. She says, I'm a word girl. And immediately, the PBS Kids show comes to my mind. 
Word girl. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? Parents? Okay. You're like, don't remind me. She says, I'm a word girl. I'm an English language arts, creative writing, history. I'm fully right-brained. The left is a dormant holding cell for the Pythagorean theorem and something about isotopes I forgot 20 years ago, three seconds after I learned it. I correct misspelled words when I text. When the PowerPoint has a grammatical error during worship, I have to close my eyes to avoid the language failure. Some of you are connecting with this already. If I lost access to a thesaurus, I would undoubtedly quit writing. Consequently, words move me. God and I do our best business in the Bible, and stories have changed my life. One well-crafted sentence can sustain me for weeks, like this one we sang Sunday at ANC, which is the name of her church. It says, God, may we be focused on the least, a people balancing the fasting and the feast. I almost came undone, she says. That statement sums up all of my intentions and hopes for the American Christ follower, the American church, the American me. With good intentions but misguided theology, the church spends most of our time, energy, resources, prayer words, programs, sermons, conferences, Bible studies, and attention on the feast, our feast to be exact. Now certainly there is a feast, and thank you God for it. Where brokenness and starvation once consumed us, God sets us a new table. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. Your light, in your light we see light. From Psalms 36, verses 5 through 9. This is the feast of the redeemed. Jesus made it possible for the wretched to dine with the Most High, neither offending His holiness nor compromising His justice. For those adopted by grace and faith, He no longer sees our failures or omissions. Amen? He only sees the righteousness Jesus covered us with. We stand safely behind Christ, made white as snow, perfect from His substitution on the cross. The currency of our salvation includes blessing, redemption, fulfillment, peace, healing, sustenance, forgiveness, and hope. It's a spiritual jackpot. For those salvaged from the gutter by Jesus, these are new mercies every morning. We are easily overwhelmed by the goodness of God, which knows no bounds. The gospel is so liberating. It is worthy of adoration every single second of every single hour of every single day forever. We will never be the same. This indeed is the feast, and to celebrate it is utterly Christian. But the feast has a partner in the rhythm of the gospel, the fast. Its practice is unmistakable in Scripture. Hundreds of times we see reduction, pouring out, abstinence, restraint. We find our Bible heroes fasting from food, like David, Esther, Nehemiah, and Jesus. We see the Philippian church fasting from self-preservation, sending Paul money in spite of their own poverty, a true sacrifice. John the Baptist says, if we have two coats, one belongs to the poor. The early church sold their possessions and lived communally, caring for one another and the broken people in their cities. We see God explain his ideas of a fast. Justice, freedom, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked. This balance is a given in Scripture. If we ignored the current framework of the church and instead opened the Bible for a definition, we find Christ followers adopting the fast simultaneously with feast. We don't see the New Testament church hoarding the feast for themselves gorging, getting fatter and fatter, and asking for more. 
More Bible studies, more sermons, more programs, classes, training, conferences, information, more feasting for us. At some point, the church stopped living the Bible and just decided to study it. Calling the feast parts and whitewashing the fast parts, we are addicted to the buffet, skillfully discarding the costly discipleship required after consuming. The feast is supposed to sustain the fast. But we go back for seconds and thirds and fourths, stuffed to the brim and fat with an activity. All this for me. My goodness, my blessings, my privileges, my happiness, my success. Just one more plate. Not so with the early church, who stunned their Roman neighbors and leaders with generosity, curbing their own appetites for the mission of Jesus. They constantly practiced self-denial to alleviate human misery. In the Shepherd of Hermas, a well-respected Christian literary work in the early 100s, believers were instructed to fast one day a week. Having, it says, having fulfilled what is written, in the day in which you fast, you will taste nothing but bread and water. And having reckoned up the price of the dishes of that day, which you intended to have eaten, you will give it to a widow or an orphan or to some person in want. And thus you will exhibit humility of mind, so that he who has received benefit from your humility may fill his own soul and pray for you to the Lord. In the early 200s, Tertullian reported that the Christians had a voluntary common fund they contributed to monthly. The fund was used to support widows, the disabled, orphans, the sick, the elderly, shipwrecked sailors, prisoners, teachers, burials for the poor, and even the release of slaves. The difference between Romans and Christians on charity was widely recognized by unbelievers. The pagan satirist Lucian mocked Christian kindness. The earnest, he says, the earnest with which the people of this religion help one another in their needs is incredible. They spared themselves nothing for this end. Their first lawgiver put it into their heads that they were all brethren. These Christians did not limit their assistance to members of their own subculture either. The Emperor Julian, who, was attempted, who attempted to lead the Roman Empire back to paganism, was frustrated by the superior compassion shown by the Christians, especially when it came to intervention for the suffering. He famously declared, The impious Galileans relieve both their own poor and ours. It is shameful that ours should be so destitute of our own assistance. What would the early church think if they walked into some of our buildings today? Looked through our church websites, talked to an average attender. Would they be so confused? Would they wonder why we all had empty bedrooms and uneaten food in our trash cans? Would they regard our hoarded wealth with shock? Would they observe orphan statistics with disbelief since Christians outnumber orphans seven to one? Would they be stunned? Most, most of us don't feed the hungry, visit the poor, care for the sick, or protect the widow. Would they see the spending on church buildings and ourselves as extravagantly wasteful while 25,000 people die every day from starvation? I think they'd barely recognize us as brothers and sisters. If we told them, church is on Sundays and we have an awesome band, this would be perplexing. I believe we'd receive dumbfounded stares if we discussed church shopping because enough people didn't say hello to us when we walked into the lobby one hour a week. If they found out one-sixth of the earth's population claimed to be Christians, I'm not sure they can reconcile the suffering happened on our watch while we're living in excess. They'd wonder if we had read the Bible or worry that it had been tampered with since their time. But listen, early church, we have a monthly event called Mocha Chicks. We have our choir practice every Wednesday. We organize retreats with door prizes. We're raising $3 million for an outdoor amphitheater. We have catchy t-shirts. We don't smoke or say the F word. We go to Bible study every semester. 
And then what, American church? Well, we go to another one. We're learning so much. I think the early church would cover their heads with ashes and grieve over the delusion of Jesus' beautiful church vision. We've taken his plan A for mercy to an injured lost planet and neutered it to clever sermon series and stitch and chat in the fellowship hall serving the saved. If the modern church held to its biblical definition, we would become the answer to all that ails society. We wouldn't have to baby talk and cajole and coax people into our sanctuaries through witty mailers and strategic ads. They'd be running to us. The local church would be the heartbeat of the city, undeniable by our staunchest critics. Instead, the American church is dying. We're losing ground in epic proportions. Our country is a graveyard of dead and vanishing churches. We made it acceptable for for people to do nothing and still call themselves Christians. And that anemic vision isn't holding. Last year, 94% of evangelical churches reported loss or no growth in their communities. And we're happy to say Portview is not one of them. We are losing 3 million people annually, flooding out the back door and never returning. The next generation downright refuses to come. Ironically, this is the result of a church that only feasts. When the fast, the death, the sacrifice of the gospel is omitted from the Christian life, then it isn't Christian at all. Not only that, it's boring. If I just want to feel good or get self-help, I'll buy a $12 book from Borders and join a gym. The church... The Bible described as exciting and adventurous and wrought with sacrifice. It cost believers everything and they still came. It was good news to the poor and stumped its enemies. The church was patterned after a Savior who had no place to lay his head and voluntarily died a brutal death even knowing we would reduce the gospel to a self-serving personal improvement program where people were encouraged to make a truce with their maker and stop sinning and join the church when in fact the gospel does not call for a truce but a complete surrender. Jesus said the kingdom was like a treasure hidden in a field. And once someone truly finds it, he will happily sell everything he owns to possess that field. A perfect description of the fasting and the feast. It will cost us everything, but it is a treasure and an unfathomable joy. This is the balance of the kingdom. To live, we must die. To be lifted, we bow. To gain, we must lose. There is no alternative definition, no path of least resistance, no treasure in the field without the sacrifice of everything else. O Lord, may we be focused on the least, a people balancing the fasting and the feast. It's challenging stuff this morning. I read it and I loudly said amen in some parts and felt the Holy Spirit in my own heart and others. So, if that doesn't challenge you this morning, then you may need to check your pulse. I'm not looking to bring a heavy message of condemnation on the American church. Honestly, this isn't the platform to even do it. But I want to speak to our church today. I want to speak to us individually today. And just say, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us? There's, there's so much in this short text. And so there's so many directions you could go. And So I took so many things that she said very explicitly and I allowed them to speak for themselves. So I just want to zoom in on a couple principles that were found in what she was talking about that I think are extremely biblical and very applicable for us today. And so, this is an appropriate time for us to address feasting and fasting, isn't it? It's November 2nd. That means Thanksgiving. And that means... A lot of eating. In fact, it's the epitome of feasting, isn't it? 
And hopefully some of you are like, oh no, where's he going with this? But if, if you're like me, um, you notice that the, the author isn't talking about just eating feasting and eating fasting, but actually is talking about quite a few different things, or you could make a number of different parallels there. Uh, she is referring to a lifestyle, more specifically a true Christ follower lifestyle, which requires the involvement of not just a portion of your life, but your life in its entirety, which is a, can be a tough message. So let's move into the biblical foundation of what we just heard. Are these claims biblically accurate? Is feasting and fasting an accurate picture of a Christian life Jesus intended? And, and the simple answer is yes, it is. The message communicated in the reading is clearly based on Scripture and is rooted in the life of Jesus. And so let's dive into it this morning. The first point that I'd like to draw from this text and from Scripture has to do with the person of Jesus himself, which is incredibly important because as Christ's followers, we literally follow the example of Christ. Someone can tell me one thing, but if it doesn't line up with Jesus and his life, it may be good it may be good advice, but it may not be biblically grounded. You know what I mean? I, I've heard all kinds of good sayings and phrases. In fact, a lot of times we get them confused with what is really Scripture. But let's look at Jesus' life and say, does this line up with him? And so the first, the first point that I want to talk about this morning is the king, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom should be the center, the heartbeat of the feast and the fast. That Jesus... Christ, the King Jesus, and His kingdom should be the center or the actual heartbeat of both the feast and the fast. Feasting should be a part of the Christian life, but just not how we think of feasting. Okay? We usually associate feasting with some type of self-indulgence, right? I think of Thanksgiving and stuffing myself with ridiculous amounts of food requiring stretchy pants and a nap on the couch watching football. Who's with me? Some honest people here, all right? That's right. So we, we typically define feasting as something we want to do or something that we've earned, right? You're like, oh my goodness, I had a long, you know, I got a busy day coming up, I'm going to grab the huge cup of coffee. You know, it's just, it's not bad, but, we, you know, that's a lot of times how we associate it. If we're honest, it's usually a little bit more selfish in nature, but Jesus, as he so often does, actually flips this upside down. Jesus' plan for his followers, his disciples, is that the godly feast is to sustain the fasting. See, Jesus himself needs to be the source of our feasting so we can go out and accomplish what he has called us to do. When I look at the four Gospels, focusing on Jesus' life and ministry, the disciples left what they had. They left their families, their jobs, what they knew to become followers of Jesus. They physically left everything to gain absolutely nothing. Do you ever think of it that way? If we all put on our, our physical glasses, the ones in which we look at um, jobs and homes and all those things through, they left all of that. And then you look over here to follow Jesus, and they're not really physically gaining anything, are they? On paper, this is a dumb decision. In America, this is where our friend would be like, what are you doing? You don't ever quit a job with having an, out having another job lined up. That's just not a good idea. How's that going to look on your resume? Nobody's going to hire you after that. You know, that, this is the physical glasses, okay? But, but what did happen is <clears throat> spiritually, they didn't leave much and they gained everything. Does that make sense? 
And so you put on the spiritual glasses, and, and, and what do they really have? They were fishing. They were making a living. It's not a bad life, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're not looking to demonize the realities of the world in which we live. But you look at the decisions they made to follow Christ, and they gained it all. They gained everything. They, gained, they literally gained everything. The disciples feasting no longer meant eating more or getting more money or more things. Feasting, in their mind, actually changed to a spiritual thing. Spending time with God in the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah. The spending time with others who followed Him. God wants us to change our definition of feasting from one of physical excess to one of spiritual necessity. Ever think of it that way? Changing our idea of feasting to one of physical excess to spiritual necessity. What did the disciples do then? Well, here's what they didn't do. They didn't just sit at Jesus' feet in Mary's house all day, every day, spiritually gorging themselves, did they? No. No, Jesus and his disciples were on the move. He would pull his disciples aside for a little while and teach them, spend time with them, and then he would send them out to accomplish his work to advance his kingdom. That's the example that's set for us in Scripture, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. His disciples quickly realized that being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you spend your whole life at Jesus' feet. They found out that that time with Jesus was to get them prepared for what he called them to do. And there's a big difference, isn't there? As, as Christians, we, especially those of us who have maybe been Christians quite a while, we can, we can spend so much time at, at Jesus' feet. Growing up, I would have heard, um, don't be so heavenly minded that you become no earthly good that we almost lose sight of really the mission of what God's called us to. And so the, the disciples set an example, an excellent example for us, for that. His disciples quickly realized that they don't just spend their whole life at Jesus' feet, but they go out and do. And so since this time was so important, because now it was viewed as a necessity, as preparation for what God wanted them to do, since they were out doing, they discovered that when it was time to meet with Jesus, they absolutely needed to be there. It wasn't an option. It didn't, they didn't want to miss a thing. This is a very challenging concept because it cuts to the very heart of our motivation, of my motivation behind our involvement in a local church and our personal time with God, doesn't it? Do I really view it as a necessity? Or do I just view it as a bonus? As some downtime? As a spot in my schedule? A follower of God desires these times because they need it to sustain them during the fasting times. So Jesus needs to be the center of our feasting time only to prepare us for what he wants us to do next. Have we ever thought of our church time, our commitment to a local church, or our personal time with God that way? Admittedly, there are times where I haven't. And so what an incredible challenge. But what about the fasting time? Okay, that's the feasting time. But now what about fasting? What's the balance here? The giving up of one thing for something better. That's really a definition of fasting. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to look at verse 25. So let's turn to Luke chapter 14, and look at verses 25 through 33 together. And we're going to be able to see it come off the pages of Scripture this morning. Luke 14, 25 through 33. 
It says, Now large crowds were going along with him, talking about Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. To be a true follower of Jesus, we're going to have to fast. Or what about the two parables recorded in Matthew? Jump over to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to go through a couple different scriptures here. Matthew chapter 13, looking at verses 44 through 46. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, in verse 44, hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all all that he had and bought it. See, following Jesus is worth giving it all up. To give it all up, to follow Him, and to advance His kingdom on earth. In fact, Jesus Himself actually personifies this as well. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I mean, Jesus was the epitome of this fasting and feasting concept. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. This is going to help us appreciate, and we took communion today, so this will be connected with that. It's going to help us appreciate what Jesus did for us even more in light of his, in light of this concept that we were talking about with fasting. See, Jesus considered our salvation more important than residing in a perfect heaven with his Father. Ever think about that? Ever think about what he gave up to actually come and accomplish and become God in the flesh for each one of us? If you think about it, it's pretty, pretty humbling. While on earth he chose to fast from his godlike qualities in order to accomplish the work of salvation, he was still fully God, right? But he put those privileges aside for you and for me. Jesus did the ultimate fast. Because that's what fasting is. Fasting isn't throwing all your food away. It's just choosing maybe not to eat it for a meal and do something else. That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't get rid of he didn't get, a, get rid of his divinity, but he chose to put it aside to accomplish something greater. And what we would say in our definition, to choose to accomplish something better. God has a pretty high view of each one of you. If he chose to give that up, give that up in order to come and make salvation possible for us. 
So he, he was still fully God, but put those privileges aside. He did the ultimate fast. And during his time, he was sustained by his feasting, right, that had taken place in heaven that was going on for eternity. And many times throughout Scripture, when he went away to be alone to spend time with his father, that was, that was a mandatory thing. He's like, holy cow, this fasting, I can't wait till Sunday. I need some church, right? And I need to get rejuvenated, or I can't wait till tonight when I can crack open this Bible because this day is whooped me up one side and down the other. You know, like it was a necessity because of what he was doing, because he was furthering God's kingdom on earth. So Jesus, once again, sets an example of how we ought to balance the fasting and the feast. He always seems to do that for us. Give us an example, doesn't he? So this is what Jesus expects of his followers too. We often fall short, like I do. We're not perfect. But that doesn't change his expectations for us, right? Or his followers and his church. The giving up of one thing for something better. Living Christ's teaching is always worth it. This is what is trying to be communicated to us and I believe to the church in America, is that the King, Jesus Christ, and His kingdom should be the center or the heartbeat of our feast and our fast. It has an incredibly solid biblical foundation. But I think all too often as, as a church, the American church, we can, we can treat our spirituality, our relationship with God, like a consumer in any other store saying, yeah, I like here, but I like this. Well, maybe I'll do both. Well, maybe. And I think we need to be careful to say, God, you set this example for us. Please, Lord, my prayer is I don't want to be walk, trying to walk it out over here. Right? I want to be aligned with the example that he set for us. And I'm not going to get it right all the time. I don't. But that doesn't change his example and his expectation. So now more than ever, we need to make a concerted effort to practice the feast and fast balance in our lives and promote this concept in our culture. That's why it's so important that my biggest passion for our kids, for the next generation coming up, that they see a right view of Christianity. That's why these concepts are a big deal. Because what the Christianity that we live out is what our kids see. And too often... Maybe it hasn't been the right picture. Maybe the people before us didn't have it right either and maybe set a false picture for us too. I don't know. But let's make sure that as a church we can be united in this idea of going forward with a right definition and a right example, not only for our kids but for our culture as well. I mean, isn't that what God wants us to do? To give an accurate representation of Him. So if the balancing of the fasting and the feasting is done correctly... Here's what happens. Our lives will reflect reflect the second point that I want to talk about this morning. The second biblical message I want to focus on from this excerpt is that Christ-like actions become routine among those who have a Christ-centered balance of fasting and feasting. That these Christ-like actions should actually become routine in our lives, should begin to make up a normal habit of who we are, this balance of fasting and feasting. When our fasting and feasting is out of balance, it makes the resulting version of Christianity unrecognizable to the most committed Christians who have gone before us and definitely 
to Jesus himself. In fact, one of the most compelling arguments that she had in her writing was when when she was having this this fake interaction with the early church. That opened my eyes to it. Hey, early church, we're doing this, we're doing this. And, and, and the early church that I read of in Acts, they probably would view it in a little, with some furrowed brow and be like, really? That's not the church we set up. That's not the church Jesus was trying to establish. It's not totally wrong, you know, like there's anything wrong with the church building. But, but what's our main thing? What's our focus? It's very challenging. But I think the most challenging part is would it, how would it be, how is it reflected to Jesus himself? If he came in and observed our lives and our services and what we do here, even here at Portview. When Christians don't balance this fasting and feasting, the world sees an inaccurate, twisted representation of Christianity and is put off by it. Have you ever noticed that? You know someone put off by Christianity? And you want to say, but, but that wasn't it. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't right. That wasn't accurate. And, and there's, there's damage that happens that way. And thank goodness there's forgiveness, right? Because I'm sure with my own kids and my own example, I'm sure there have been times that I haven't done it right. But man, I really want to get it right. I really want to communicate the right message. When, when Christians don't do this, that's the inaccurate representation of Christianity that they see. And this is why the writer of the book of James can confidently say in James 2.18, he says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In James 1.22 it says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. James understood that true Christianity is not a faith of inactivity, but a faith of increasing Christ-likeness subsequent to the heart change that God is doing in the inside of each believer. So Christianity is not faith by works, but faith that will increasingly demonstrate an outward expression of the inward change in a believer's heart. Does that make sense? So Matthew 5.16 says this, Let your light shine before men and in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As we do this, we will find ourselves choosing the eternal over the temporal. Right? Choosing to take off the physical glasses and choosing to put on the spiritual ones. Allow God to work in our hearts. The the spiritual over the physical. We'll be living out what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19-21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Allow God to work so evidently in our lives, in your life, so we can exemplify to the world the heart of Jesus and then show it through our Christ-reflecting actions. As individual Christians, as families, and as a church, let's show our communities an accurate picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And if we do this as a church body, God will change Port Washington and the surrounding communities using us. And isn't that all we want to be a part of? I don't want to be part of, a, of Christianity that is completely inactive. I want to be actively involved with God and what He's doing to change and impact the world around me. Let's exchange 
the best this world has to offer for the better things God has for us. Are we willing to do that this morning? I don't know how that may look in your life. There were so many messages communicating in that reading. There's so many examples that we could take out of it. But I think the principle is still the same. Let's exchange the best this world has to offer for the better things God has for us. Christ-like actions become routine among those who have a Christ-centered balance of fasting and feasting. Well, living, as we described today, can only happen when an individual Christian commits and begins to live this kind of life. Doing this actually becomes contagious. The biggest roadblock for us is our own selfishness. Do you remember the story from Matthew 13:44, where it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Here's what I've seen happen in the lives of too many people not wanting to sacrifice everything to purchase the field themselves. Some will associate themselves with Christians and Christianity hoping that the people who have sold everything to buy the field with the treasure in it, like maybe missionaries or new believers or people that we know, a lot of people loving the stories, hoping that those people will kindly split the treasure fortune with them. But it never works that way. In America, we call that having your cake and eating it too. Another selfish cake feast for me, right? In fact, if we're being honest, we would admit that we feel horrible and even sick or uncomfortable regretting that we ate from the feasts of this world again and again. We want the real and the internal but we keep feasting elsewhere at times. The reason we always end up feeling that way after the world's feast is because that's not God's plan or His design for His followers. That's the reason. If there's been any part of this message for you this morning that has resonated with you, whether both in the reading or in the Scripture that we've looked at, you're actually in the right place. You're in company. We're all sitting in here desiring to set that right example, trying to live out what God has called us to do. There are people all around you today that have given up what the world has to offer for the better things God has for them. That's why this isn't a message of condemnation. It may be challenging at different points, but it really is an encouraging message to say, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's be motivated by the people around us. As a church body, let's be willing to do this. We are committed as a church to practice and promote this biblical definition of Christ-like living, balancing the fasting and the feast. Maybe to put it a better way, here at Portview Church, we are striving to be people who care. What we heard and the message communicated today is really the message that we have in our sign out front. And it's not because we've already attained that. Somebody could walk in and be very critical and say, you're not people who care, look at this, this, this. You're right, but that's what we're going for. A heart that cares, both about God and pursuing His kingdom and what He wants to see done on earth, and about other people. Jesus condensed the Ten Commandments and the laws of the prophets to two, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We want to be people who care at Portview Church. As a church, we are not interested in a legalistic assessment of works 
but in hearts that have encountered the living God and are committed to Him and the promotion of His kingdom no matter the cost. That's what we're committed to. As a church, we will not compromise. So this morning, let's be challenged as individuals and as a church to live out the heart change God is doing in us and by having Jesus be the heartbeat of our fasts and feasts and by accurately and consistently representing Christ through a right balance of fasting and feasting. Jesus said this, said the kingdom was like a treasure hidden in a field and once someone truly finds it, he will happily sell everything he owns to possess that field. That's a perfect, perfect description of the fasting and feasting. It will cost everything, but it is a treasure and an unfathomable joy. This is the balance of the kingdom. To live we must die. To be lifted we must bow. To gain we must lose. There is no alternative definition, no path of least resistance, no treasure in field in the field without the sacrifice of everything else. So this morning, let's commit to balancing both the fasting and the feast. Does that make sense this morning? Would you please stand with me as we conclude in a time of prayer? As we close today, I trust the Holy Spirit in our interactions with Him as, as we feel how we need to end our time today. But if you feel so led, please some t- spend some time up at the altar. Spend some time praying together in your seat. Spend, spend some time with whatever God is already doing in your heart. And then as you feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit, you may go ahead quietly and, and be dismissed. So let's pray. God, thank You for Your message to the church. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit is so alive that to our culture, to our church body, to us as individuals, a message that has been sent for thousands of years just rings absolutely truer even today. That scripture that's been written so long ago has so much application for today. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit is that fresh and that new for us. That your Holy Spirit is that powerful enough to communicate to us what no other person ever could. To open up our hearts and say things that no one else ever could. And God, I believe that this message for us today and for our church today is just one of confirmation in something you've already been doing in us. It's confirmation for the people that were shaking their heads and saying amen and saying, that's it. That's what God wants to do. That's what God's already doing. And so Lord, help us be able to live out this fasting and feast in a culture that will so much pressure us to do more of the worldly fasting than anything, or feasting than anything else, God help us to be able to keep a right perspective. Lord, thank you for the grace for when we don't do it. Thank you for the willingness, God, that we don't lose out on what you have for us. But God, we continue to right our ship, steering it the right direction constantly following what you have to say. So Lord, Lord, help us to be obedient to what you want to do this morning. Thank you for your word and the power of your word. I pray that we would leave this church this morning committed to the cause that you set forth thousands of years ago and empowered and excited to impact the world around us for Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.